Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey guys, welcome back to Soul Sisters. I'm Jesse Katz here with my co-host as ever, Dara Golub. Uh, as anyone who's ever listened to an episode of this podcast knows, my musical taste is heavily influenced by my father. Well, my dad called me a couple weeks ago from Columbus and said, I just saw this amazing woman sax player named Grace Kelly. You have to book her on Soul Sisters. So I looked her up like the good daughter I am and saw that not only does she tour around the country with her band, but she also plays on Stephen Colbert's show here in New York. So I took a chance and reached out and now we are fortunate to have her on the podcast today. She's a former jazz prodigy and now just all around astounding musician and singer and lovely person. Please welcome to the podcast, Grace Kelly. Um, okay, so Dar and Grace, you guys know a lot of people in common. Well, yeah, we yeah. were just saying, so I thought you were Berkeley, but you said you were New England Conservatory Prep. So is that right. high school then? I was actually, I started the prep school when I was in middle school. Like I think... I think I was one of their youngest uh, students to start their jazz certificate program. So I did it from, I think, like sixth grade all through mm, probably to like freshman year in high school. What's what's an average age to start there? Usually like all the boys who are in my classes were all high school juniors and seniors and it was all boys it was all boys <laughs> i remember that because i remember i took this ear training class and i would beg my mom every weekend that i just beg her to to not make me go it was because it was very difficult for me because at that time i was just learning about intervals and i think in the class setting it was an advanced ear training class and these high school juniors and seniors there was probably like nine boys and they were just slamming at ear training. And the teacher would go around to each person and play intervals and then test us and what it was. So it was like every person got that moment and I would just dread. And you're like 12 years old. <laughs> and I was like 12. And I was already so scared to be around like these these old high school guys. <laughs> so I think I probably said like five words that whole year to them. No, that's so intimidating. That's a jazz school thing or a music yeah. school thing where you have to, where you're put on the spot. I mean, it's a school thing, but in music school, you're put on the spot to identify intervals and totally and chord qualities and things that's very intimidating now i'm very thankful for it because i realized that kind of having that pressure really made me go back every night go home and test myself because the next week you know i wanted to get it right and then i learned so much theory 
within New England Conservatory Prep School because the teachers were so fantastic and they really wanted to make sure you got it. So it wasn't just like, you know, scribbling it on, on the paper and seeing if you knew how to connect, you know, this is a two, five, one bracket that they made you play it on your instrument and like sing it and really get it. So I'm grateful for as freaked out as I was at that time. Now I'm like, okay, I'm very glad that I went. It paid off. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Now, dumb question. Is that on top of regular schooling or that's full time? Yeah. So New England Conservatory prep school was on Saturdays. Okay. Okay. So yeah, I would do my regular school stuff. And then I would go in at like 9 a.m. and get out at like 5 p.m. because it was basically um, theory, ensembles, private lessons, ear training. It was just a a whole day's worth, which was great. It's prepping you for music school. Right. College. Totally. Yeah. Okay. So I've read that the word prodigy has been attached to you. (laughs) What is your relationship with that word? And when did that enter into your life? So it's interesting. Um, When I was a really young girl, like I was six years old, I was singing, acting and dancing. And arts has the arts has been super important to my family since I was like, since I was like two, my parents had taken my sister and me to see Broadway shows. When I was six, they took me to jazz clubs. There's pictures of me like falling asleep in my dad's arms. So but you're not from New York. No, I'm from um, Brookline, Massachusetts. Okay, so they were bringing you to the city to see shows? No, actually, well, Broadway shows, like touring yes. shows. Broadway shows, yes. And then okay. in Boston, there's great jazz clubs there. So we would just go there. Um, but I think, yeah, two times a year we come to New York and see like great Broadway productions. Are parents, they musicians? Yeah, yeah. Are they, are they artists themselves? Oh. How did that happen? No. So my, my dad, not at all. Um, he, he's my manager now and he has been since I was 12. He's great at, at business and, and the music business. And my mom is not a musician, but her family has a line of great classical musicians. My aunt went to Juilliard for classical violin my grandma studied classical piano her mother I think played great classical piano and sang in church so my mom grew up in a and my mom has perfect pitch and she can just like sit down at the piano and play chords after not touching a piano for like years and she doesn't even think that it's like I'm like that's amazing yeah Yeah. she's playing like walking bass lines and then transposing and I'm like what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Where did she grow up? Uh, my mom was born in, in Seoul, Korea, and okay. then her whole family moved to the States when she was 17. Wow. But yeah, so talking about the prodigy thing, uh, music and the arts has always been around our house, but it was never something that I thought I would do professionally. Um, so kind of the backstory is, yeah, six years old, wanted to be Broadway actress, loved singing, dancing, all of those things. And then I've, I've always loved the sound of the saxophone. My parents played a lot of the jazz saxophone of Stan Getz around the house. And they play like the stuff with the Strud Ghiberto and Joe Beam, Girl from Ipanema. And as a little girl, I would walk around the house and I'd sing along to all his solos. Not, it's just a totally subconscious thing. But his sound was just so mesmerizing. It was like a human voice. And um, so in the back of my head, I always knew I love the saxophone. So fast forward a bit, I was 10 years, no, I was in fourth grade. And in private school, you pick an instrument. So I picked clarinet because for some reason they didn't offer saxophone. That was for the fifth graders. So I was like, okay, if I have to start on clarinet to get to saxophone, that's fine. I'll do that. 
And it was terrible. I hated the clarinet. Squeaking, squawking. <laughs> not fun. Nobody wanted to listen to me. Yeah, and there's then, nothing more painful than hearing someone at that age learning how to play an oh, instrument. Yeah. I mean, like, especially it's, violin, but clarinet. Clarinet's like, up and, there. Yeah, yeah. It's up there. It's bad. So I had kind of, I said to my parents, do you think I could play saxophone? I don't want to wait for fifth grade. And they were like, yeah, let's go, you know, let's go to the music store and we'll find you a saxophone. And it happened to be at the time that my, I was taking piano lessons and my piano teacher is a great saxophonist. So we just split the lesson, 30 minutes piano, 30 minutes saxophone, which quickly became an hour of saxophone. And I remember the first time I blew into the horn, it was like, Really? Yeah, it was amazing. I mean, I got a nice sound right away. It just clicked. Six weeks after I started, I had my first performance at Borders Books. I was so small at the time, I couldn't. Borders, which doesn't exist anymore, right? It's not even here. Pour one out for Borders. I know. And I was so small that I had to sit on my saxophone case, put a pillow out in front of me, and then put the saxophone on the pillow and play sitting down. How did that happen? <laughs> like, this little girl just picked up the sack six weeks uh, before. How? Yeah. Well, you know, I think, I I think that half the battle is finding the right instrument. And in this case, I don't know what it is about the saxophone, but I think we were we were meant to find each other. And since I listened to so much jazz growing up, like I knew. Frank Sinatra songs because my parents played that I knew Broadway songs all this so I told my teacher from the beginning I don't want to play Twinkle Twinkle Little Star can we learn Besame Mucho or like My Funny Valentine so he would teach me the songs by ear and that's what we played at Borders we played My Funny Valentine Besame Mucho and St. Thomas in front of like you know 20 people so it's not just the talent it's what's going on in your mind that you are sophisticated in your taste and you want to reach that level that that you enjoy as a listener yeah it was that it's not even me thinking about like this is going to be sophisticated this is going to be mature it was literally like I love this song and I want to play this song because it will you know make my brain come alive and, and right yeah and it's really but, the difference of of being told you have to play an instrument being told you have to take classes and practice right. versus someone who's willing and wanting to do it totally. so I imagine that the the chore of practicing wasn't so much of a chore for you it wasn't that well saxophone was the first time that my parents didn't have to tell me to practice because my mom would like trying to get me to play classical piano at the age of six I don't, I don't think I mentioned that but I started classical piano at six and I hated playing the notes on the page and instead I would just make up my own song so she couldn't get me to read you know the actual piece and, and do you like, have that ear where you can just pick it out yeah okay. yeah so when I was seven years old I wrote my first tune I knew three chords I wrote a country song and, you know, my parents would walk in and be like, that's not the song that your teacher assigned you. What are you doing? But you were even you were able to think in chords. If you're learning classical piano, right. at least from my experience, it's it. you don't really have that. It's visually it's not so chordal and mm-hmm. you don't really think in those terms. Totally. But you were. I think I like nobody even taught me the chords. I just liked how it sounded. And then I was like, OK, and then I'm going to sing something over this and make up words that made no sense at the time. And yeah. It was natural. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because like, think if you had been 25 and you picked up the sax and you were really good at it, but maybe you're not suddenly 
playing in public six weeks later, I'm sure it's also the added fact that you're so young that then it's like I had a spectacle to see this little kid who can play like that. Totally. And in my mind, it's like there was nothing to be embarrassed about. I had nothing to lose. Like I, I was just so excited to play this instrument. I think that has a lot to do with it too. Like there's no mm, like embarrassment filter when you're that young. Right. Yeah. Well, there certainly can be, you know, I think that's part of it too, is that there was a number of factors that led you to not only push yourself and play and practice, but that you started off as a show woman, you were an entertainer. That's such a good point. And so you had that ability to just get out and say, screw it, I'm here I am. And I'm sure you were pretty flawless for that age and that level of uh, proficiency, but it's a funny thing because people say to me, do you get nervous when you're on stage or And I think, you know, because my training when I was so young was on stage and was, you know, performing, I actually like I might get a little bit nervous leading up to the performance part. But once I'm on stage, I just feel so at home. So I think that's the other thing. Yeah, it was like I've loved the stage. And so and I had it. My first saxophone teacher was so amazing at basically saying to me, improvise, play whatever you want there's no wrong notes go for it so and that it, didn't scare you it didn't. It, it, it's you were like liberated by it was that, like a to like, golden yeah. gate because that's what I didn't like about having to practice classical music is that yeah I would play wrong notes and all that mm-hmm. but I remember I had an all-girls band in sixth grade called blue infinity and I couldn't get a lot of my friends in the band to improvise because they were worried about playing the wrong note but for me it was the opposite it was like freedom so is that just having a jazz brain? Is that what that is? I think, I think it's creativity. And and I think that as a young kid, um, I, I think that's always innately there. But I think having the right teacher and like the safe environment and is so important because I, I deal, I, I do a lot of workshops and I've, I'm now seeing a lot more uh, young girls playing the saxophone, which is fantastic. Wow. Awesome. Even 10 years yeah. ago, it was... There's nobody. Nobody. And yeah. to see them improvising and going for it. But it takes kind of like sometimes just encouragement and confidence boost. And again, just saying to them, go for it. There's no wrong notes. You know, just do That's your thing. So interesting. Because I was saying to Susan Tedeschi, who was on before because she has an awesome uh, woman trombone player. And I was like, it was so great to see that because I don't see a lot of women brass players. And Mm. I'm always wondering why that is. Is there something about the instrument that's harder for women, but that doesn't really make sense to me? It doesn't make sense to me either. So that's an interesting theory. It is. And the only thing that I, you know, I don't know. I feel like, I don't know why there has to be, why in the past there's been such a, a gender imbalance. I mean, I guess I can, we've all heard the thing of uh, people saying, you should play flute, it's more feminine, or, you know, why would you want to play Yeah, let's big... talk about that. Were people saying that to you? Actually, well, I... Well, you started so early, they yeah, didn't have a chance. I was lucky that both my parents were have always been 150% supportive. Mm-hmm. And as a family, we've all loved the sound of the saxophone. So I never had, like, in my family, a parent saying oh, it's too loud, or like, play play violin, or play flute. It was quite the opposite. It was like... Were their parents like that, or like, where did they get this from? I think my grandma was probably a little bit like that. Like On I, which side? On my mom's side. Okay. And 
I, I've never asked my mom this, but I, I wonder if that also had something to do with when she was raising her own kids, not having that type of, you have to play mm-hmm. flute, piano, or violin. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, I hear a similar thing with even parents talking about, oh, I don't know, a girl shouldn't bang on drums. or And I think sax, you know, woodwinds, brass, drums, those are considered louder more masculine instruments you get out there on the sax when you like wail and you growl and and it's not like a a dainty sound so i really hope that it continues to change like it has been that anybody of any gender can pick whatever instrument they want and i think we're headed in that direction which is really great yeah and i guess that starts in schools because even in fourth grade you weren't even offered sax I mean that was an age thing but I wonder how it goes when they hand out instruments right in fifth grade or whatever and is it is it just the the vibe of the class that it's like oh no you don't you know it has to be from the teachers or from a bigger place and they say they see like a small girl like I was saying when I first started the saxophone I couldn't stand up and hold it so they might be like oh we'll just play the flute you know and right now I've been working um with John Batiste and Stay Human playing in the band for um, Late Night with Stephen Colbert. And I play the baritone saxophone, which is like 22 pounds and literally just about the length of me, (laughs) like just to like put it on me and try to maneuver. And, you know, when I play the low notes, it like vibrates my whole body because it's just so big and and low. And yeah, I, I think, you know, most little kids wouldn't really if if they're like the same size as the instrument well do little kids can you even really come up on baritone yeah, when does that happen? Start yeah, how that. does that happen actually you probably have to be bigger at, uh, than the instrument <laughs> at that point i can't imagine like a, a third grader playing baritone sax whatever people play upright bass and it's taller than most right of them. right Good point yeah. But but you didn't start on baritone, did you? No, no, no. no. Yeah, That's okay. actually so I haven't played baritone since eighth grade. And then when That's I got little. Yeah. And <laughs> then when I got the call to start with this band in December, John said to me, Do you play baritone sax, soprano, alto, uh, flute, clarinet, vocals, keys? And Not was, or and and, and. and I was like, Yes, I do. But I haven't played baritone since eighth grade. And I haven't played clarinet since fourth grade, but sure. (laughs) (laughs) That was the right answer. (laughs) Okay, but back to the prodigy question. I just remembered. Right. So when did you hear that word? So I actually made my first CD when I was 12 years old. I had been playing saxophone for two years at that point. I was singing. I was writing my own music. And my music teacher from when I was in kindergarten through, gosh, probably like fourth grade, was a great jazz pianist. And he left to pursue his own career when he when I was like, yeah, probably in third grade or something like that. What was his name? Ken Berman. And he's a great jazz pianist. Um, and I remember my parents had invited him over for dinner when he was in town. And I was 12 years old and I had played him some of my songs and he knew how I was playing the saxophone. And he said to me, Grace, this is phenomenal. You need to record a CD. And I was like, Mr. Berman, like, how do I do that? That's for old people. I don't I don't even know. Like the thought had never it was a different crossed my mind. technology was different then yeah. it, wasn't, it wasn't as easy to record it's a not CD like you, could you just, have to like go and you have to hire go people to a studio. Right. It wasn't like garage band, you right. know, what year um, was this? 
this was gosh uh this was tw- 12 years ago okay yeah um wait is that right 13, no 14. i think 11 years ago yeah so um he said no i i think you should really document this so that when you're 40 years old you can listen back to what you were doing when you were 12 and be like wow and so the idea was the CD would be for you. For me. Yeah. Yeah, just to see. So he said, I'll play on it and then call John Lockwood. He's the best bass player in town. You know, call Iran Israel. Here's a great studio, PBS recording studios. And so he gave all the info to my dad. So my dad called up these musicians who are like, you know, in their 50s, teaching at Berklee College of Music. Like John Lockwood's played with Dizzy Gillespie, with Stan Getz, like seasoned veteran musicians and he said would you come into the studio to record with my 12 year old daughter like i got your name and and they all said yes because it was it was a gig so did they ask to hear anything of yours no wow no paid to play (laughs) freelance musicians (laughs) wow that's amazing what was your dad doing then my dad um my mom had owned a retail store like clothing jewelry and so they owned it together. Okay. Before that, he was in construction. He had a construction business. So okay. had no Nothing. previous music business, <sighs> anything. But he made the phone call and they showed up at the studio. And what were you thinking at that point? What was your confidence level? <laughs> were you like, <laughs> yeah, I'm really going to impress them because I know my stuff? Or were you like, oh my God. Like, I, I think I was just really nervous. I don't know. Just yeah. excited and nervous. But it didn't really come together in, in my mind until that day where I like saw them. I saw the studio. It's the first time there was a microphone in front of me, like a mixing board. I mean, it blew my mind. And they heard you. So you didn't like send them tracks first. Like you got to no. the studio and then you had to basically teach them. I wrote out all the music. You wrote it out. Yeah, I wrote out charts. And, and then what you learned to do at New England prep. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. But and what were these songs? So one of them, one of them was the song that I wrote when I was seven years old. It's called <laughs> "On My Way Home," and it's like the three chord song it was a country song. And then another one was an original called "Gbop," and I wrote this song that happens to be like in five four. It's a blues, um, really fun tune. So I think I brought only a few songs because our idea was only to document you know, three songs uh-huh. or something like that. By the way, I think we've answered your question now. She's <laughs> writing the five, four. Yeah, but I want to know when tunes. she heard the word. <laughs> right, yeah, right, yes. Right. It's clear that that's what the situation was. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so we recorded that day. And I remember at the end of this, the, the recording, the engineer came out with a CD and was like, here, you can take this home. This was the session. And I was like, what? And then we went into the car and like put the CD in and we heard... <laughs> Like what we did that day. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. Um, what were the other songs? I, I can't. So I think one of them was, yeah, G-Bop, On My Way Home. And then there was a song I wrote called Dreaming. Okay. And But that's all you did was those three songs? Yeah. Okay. And so then later, so we had those three songs. That was great. And then later we realized you know what, great, like my parents are saying, Grace, you've been learning all of these songs in your private lessons, like In Walked Bud, you know, One by One, Wayne Shorter song, like all these cool standards. Why don't you go record those? It's like, okay, cool, let's do it. So we went back in and then we ended up making a full CD. And um, again, it's like, this was just, this was not to have a career in this. It was just, here was a, a full documented CD of everything 
I was doing at that time. So all the standards I was learning, the songs I was writing, all of that. And so at this point, you're at the New England School, the New England Conservatory on the weekends. Yeah. You're recording. Yeah. And still the wheels aren't turning of this could be my career. Not at all. Not at all. I actually didn't I mean, know. She's 12. Yeah. So like, well, what does 12, that mean? But you're devoting, you must have, so like, what was your practicing routine at that point? Like, you must have been giving so much of your so time. So much time. So, but, but it's still just... Career and music didn't click. It was just, I think at the time, like I had such a fascination with the saxophone. Like right after school, I'd come home. I would just practice for hours. I'd take breaks. How many hours? Probably like two or two hours. Okay. And then maybe I'd play a little bit longer. Then I would write a song and then my I'd keep playing and my parents would have to tell me to stop so that I could go to bed and then I, I, I could get up. So it was just, I was so fascinated by saxophone and kind of learning at such a rapid speed. But no, I, the last thing from my mind was a career in music. And I didn't even know that people could, you know, sustain themselves and do that. Um, and so after we made the CD and we pressed, you know, a few copies for friends and family, my parents said, well, I think the next thing that we should do is you should do a CD release concert. Again, like so far <laughs> from my brain to think. So your parents are putting up the money for all this. Obviously. Yes. They're and paying was, the musicians. Yes. They're and getting that, the space and all that. Exactly. And that was a, a huge thing that we were even able to do that because, you know, to have mm -hmm. the resources like yeah. that was really, really fantastic. And... um so we rented out a church in Brookline, Massachusetts, and we were going to do my CD release concert there with the same musicians, and we were going to invite all our friends and family, figured probably like 30 people would come. And so the day, and I was practicing up until that concert of how to be a band leader. I remember yeah. I practiced in our living room. And how I, do you practice that? I wrote out sticky notes to say, on bass, John Lockwood, <laughs> on drums, you're on Israel. Because I had seen concerts, you know. Had and, someone at that point, one of the musicians you were playing with, stepped in and, and taken the role as band leader in terms of arranging and, and, and... No one ever did. So it was really you from the start, even though yeah. you were 12 years old and had never done it. And what's amazing about the situation is, like, the bass player, John Lockwood, when he was playing my music, he would look at me and, and say, Grace, is this what you want? You know, so the amount of respect that they gave me is incredible because it would be easy to say, oh, she's 12. She doesn't know. Let's just ask the other musicians and they'll make the decisions. But every single one of them said, oh, do you like this line? Is this what you want? And I'd be like, no, like, let's let's do something a little more like this. Not really having the experience to back it up, but I just knew what I liked. If I heard something I liked, I'd be like, yeah, that's cool. Or eh, I don't know about that. So right from the get go, I was kind of handed this responsibility of no one else is going to do it for me. And you felt confident enough to just answer those questions. I think because I was put on the hot seat yeah, and I didn't want to seem like I didn't know what, what right. was going on. I just, did you feel like you answered. were faking it at all? Or are you? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think the minute that I walked in and saw the microphone and the mixer and the engineers like, okay, here's your mic. This is where you right. stand. Like this is the adjustments of all this. And here's the piano and bass. And then he left and I'm just like, what? <laughs> like, what's going on? But at the same time, it's like my session, mm -hmm. all of these musicians are there and I didn't have anyone you know, who, who was a musical director or anything like that. So, okay. So you're okay. So cu cut back to the concert. Oh yeah. Now. So the day of the concert rolls around and the local newspaper p 
picks up the story of my concert and puts me on the front page with like this big article. And so that night comes. And like I was saying, I was prepping really hard. I had stickies of what to say. And this is really funny. At that time, I was doing a lot of tap dancing. So in my first concert. Just for fun or studying it? Just for fun. Like, okay. But I'd, I'd go to classes. I was actually pretty good at the time. Um, my first concert, I tap danced and played saxophone on one song oh at the same time. Yes. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. <laughs> so, like, prepping for the concert at the same, at the same time. It's really, really. How that's an out of your breath. Yeah, yeah, my yeah, my teacher, my saxophone teacher was terrified <laughs> that I was going to drop my horn because yeah. I was spinning like. And then I put the saxophone down, and my plan was to trade fours with the drummer. And the whole reason why I did this was one of the moms in my tap class had dared me to do it. She's like, "I bet you can't play saxophone and tap at the same time." <laughs> And so, for some reason, I don't remember why, but I was like, I'm going to do that in this concert. But you didn't have tap shoes on, though, did you? I did. You yeah, had tap shoes the whole show? Oh, no, just that song. <laughs> you, like, changed? We brought, like, a... Um, we brought a little board just for that song oh, so it wouldn't scratch the Is there a video? Floor. Yeah, please. There's somewhere there's video. I, my dad had videotaped it. <laughs> Gotta get it. that on YouTube. Yes. Yeah. That. Yes. <laughs> so, not only was I prepping for the concert by reading stickies and trying to remember everyone's name and how to introduce a song, but I was practicing tap and saxophone. <laughs> um, so, the day of the not concert... Not singing yet, though. No. Oh, no, for, I was. For this concert. I was. I was singing as well. In, yeah. Okay. I had well, this that's another question. Threat. When did the singing happen? Well, you said the singing. Oh, sorry. The singing was actually first before okay. like anything. Because as soon as I started speaking, I guess I was singing. Yeah. I just, okay, okay. You know, and with Broadway stuff, I loved it. So the concert comes around and we thought it was just going to be a few friends and family. But this article came out, blah, 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 blah. There's 250 people that came that night and it was like standing room only. And I was terrified. I remember they like introduced my name and I almost didn't go on the stage because it was just like too much. Like, this is the first time I'm leading a band. We're playing my music. I have like tap shoes. <laughs> it's just like too much. But I did finally go on. And, you know, it was great. We had a fantastic concert. And I remember at one point during the concert, there's this little voice in my head being like, this is so cool. Mm -hmm. Like if I could do this for the rest of my life and the feelings that I'm feeling, like that would be amazing. And I, and that's the first moment that it even occurred in my head that I could 
kind of do this professionally. Yeah. What was the feeling? Just fun? So fun. Like, so, you know, I think music, playing music is this incredible emotional blessing where when you're really tapped in, it's like you're just on the highest of high and you're not, you can't even think about things that are going wrong. You can't think about anything really, but it's almost to me like a meditative state. Like I go kind of black and if I'm really into it and like my eyes are closed and I'm in it, sometimes at the end of the song when people start clapping, I open my eyes and like I forget where I was. And so I think, you know, besides all of my nerves at the time, I was, I had a few of those moments. And um, from that moment, you know, it was a very organic thing that happened in my career. It was like the next year we made another CD because I had more songs and I, we went to record it. Same musicians? Um, I think so. Yeah. Or maybe, no, different drummer. It started to like change a little bit. Then the next CD when I was 14, um, great drummer, Terry Lynn Carrington, she recorded drums on it. Terry Lynn's played with Stevie Wonder, Stan Getz, like everybody. Um, and luckily Berkeley College of Music is right around the corner and that's where a lot of these great musicians were teaching. And it was my third CD, Every Road I Walked, that the local DJ started to spin some cuts. And then people, I would sit in with my teacher at these jam sessions and other people would hear me and say, oh, come sit in with us. And certain things happen. Like I went to this, uh, workshop that Harry Connick Jr. was putting on. It was in the basement at New England Conservatory and a few of us played and afterwards he was shaking all of our hands and then he took my hand and he whispered in my ear, come sit in with me tonight, you know, playing at the theater nearby. And it was like these moments like playing with the late great Dave Brubeck, a very similar thing happened where I met him and I had one of my past saxophone teachers played in his band for many years. And he said, why don't you come sit in with us at the Berkeley Performance Center? Like somebody I've grew up listening to. And Wynton Marsalis, like in New York, I actually met him <laughs> at a steakhouse. And I was just playing with a great trio there. They adv- invited me to play. Antonio Chiaca was on piano. And Antonio said to me, can you stick around for the second set? There's a great trumpet player who's going to come come around. <laughs> I was like, yeah, yeah, it's cool. So we're like playing the second set, you know, and in walks Swinton oh, with his son. And there's literally like 10 people in front of us. And he plays the whole second set with us. And then I get a call like a week later from his people being like, will Grace be a special guest at Rose Hall with Winton, you know, in a few months? Will she be um, available to play Obama's inauguration at the, the Kennedy Center? How old? I was 16 for that one. <sighs> But the things that were happening, I guess what I'm trying to say, like getting to work these incredible musicians, um, including two of my saxophone mentors and idols, Lee Konitz and Phil Woods, who have played with, you know, Lee Konitz was in Miles Davis, Nonette. Phil Woods was, you know, played with every great jazz musician. Um, it was a very organic thing, how my careers progressed. And I continue to have it be that way because I think that when you're open to a lot of possibilities and you kind of just let the universe take take you where it will and you just connect with people and you you play music opportunities kind of arise and I was lucky that from a young age I, I found something I loved to do and I was in a city that there were so many great musicians and I was very lucky that so many of these musicians wanted to 
mentor me and really like give me a moment to be on stage with them. So yeah, it's a, it's pretty cool. Wow. Are you an only child? No, I have an older sister. What does she do? She is in the uh, gaming industry. Oh, cool. yeah. Again, and what part of it? She, she's she, do? um, she does project management, working with um, a lot of the engineers. Okay, and she's a great writer. She went to Harvard, so she's doing freelance blogging for you know great um, video gaming places and. She's just such a talented writer and thinker and yeah. Okay. I'm trying to think about like what was the other part of your childhood like apart from the music? Yeah. Because this seems so all consuming. Right. That did you have normal time? Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Were you able to (laughs) like like relax (laughs) and like do kid things? Totally. Okay. I've always been a very social person and I've had great friends ever since I was. Okay, good. You did have friends. Yeah, I had had friends. Um, I would say like once I kind of became so obsessed with music, I wasn't like after school, I wouldn't really go and hang out. I would just want to come home and, and practice. But then you know, on weekends and stuff and totally see my friends. And then I started an all girls band in sixth grade called Blue Infinity. And we were a big hit within our grade. And we played like, like playing at parties and bar mitzvahs <laughs> and stuff. Or what? We played in my basement and we did like <laughs> parties. Our, yeah. And everyone would come and we'd burn CDs, you know, cool. of us wow. playing. And we were playing like Super Mario Brothers theme song. Like, <laughs> what was the band? All the hits. Yeah. Consist- what did it, it consist was, of? Uh, a girl playing flute, trumpet, myself on saxophone, um, drums, keys, uh, and bass. Wow. Were yeah. these from the prep school that you knew these musicians? or, or No, these were like my friend friends. friends. Yeah. Mm-hmm. From from middle school. But I've, I've always had a pretty healthy balance of doing, like, I was doing music, but I was also going to dance classes, right. and I was also having fun with friends, and I was going to a great public school so you know that was yeah. a cool thing it, it yeah. sounds like the school part of it was rigorous enough that you were able to graduate early from high school yeah so what ended up happening is by the time I was 16 I was actually doing quite a lot of touring and I I was going on tour with my band we'd play in Europe for like three weeks we'd be you know around the states playing a lot of concerts and so it got so busy that I was getting half homeschooled and half going to high school. And when I was probably, when I was 15, I had auditioned for Berkeley College of Music. And they heard me and they were like, we want to have you at our school, going to give you a full scholarship to come here. But you have to come here. In order for you to get this scholarship, it has to start like next year. So I was like, this is an amazing opportunity I want to be in a situation where my peer group is their musicians and they're challenging me because, you know, I was in high school band and it was cool, but I think I knew there was so much other room to grow. And so I ended up getting my GED, got out of high school early, um, started at Berkeley when I was 16. And even throughout all of Berkeley, I was touring with my band, but it was a great, great place to be and I made some of my best friends there and met just incredible faculty and musicians yeah was there ever a time that it was difficult I guess being a woman 
in in college in Berkeley, were you ever treated in a way that that you can look back on and say, oh, that wasn't. You Is know, there a reputation for that? No, no. Uh, well, just just in music. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just in general, not Berkeley at all specifically. Yeah. Just wondering if, because it sounds like you've had a generally positive experience and yeah. it's been wonderful, but I just wonder if if it really can can be that easy. And I think a lot of it comes from the level of preparedness that uh-huh. comes from, you know, a female musician. If they're like ready to kill it, then it's going to be harder right. to, but um I'm just wondering. Yeah, I mean, the balance of, again, women to men, even in the jazz program at Berkeley, there was, I could count it on one hand, probably, of great female musicians playing instruments. So some of my best friends are great female musicians. And I was, I've been pretty lucky. I mean, I've had a few weird situations where something inappropriate will come up and and I'll just immediately distance myself from that musician because there's no need for that. And there's so many great musicians who will be very professional and wonderful people. Um, But I think like you're saying, the mentality of basically like, I've always thought I want to learn the craft of my instrument as well as I possibly can and continue to, to push and, and grow. And I never thought by like dressing up in a skirt and looking cute that I could kind of get away with stuff. That's just, I was like, I want to be a great musician, blah, 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 blah. So by the time I was there, even if somebody who saw me was like, oh yeah, that's cool. She's a chick, whatever, which I'm sure was running through their heads at like jam sessions. You go, we're all freshmen, blah, blah, blah. But as soon as I took out my saxophone and I played, it was like no questions asked. Mm-hmm. And and to me, sometimes that's the thing. Like sometimes when I meet other musicians or people and I tell them like, yeah, you know, and if they don't know my music or me, I play saxophone. And I can see it in their face. Like, oh, that's nice. She's like a little girl playing saxophone, blah, blah, blah. But and I, I think it's probably the same for a lot of musicians when we hear the music and we associate it with the person and we're like, blown away and just like wow I love your music then it's just the whole vibe changes Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely when did you record your second album I recorded my second album when I was 13 wow and I I ended up doing like I kind of did an album a year but by the time I was like 16 I think there was a little there's a little break so like my new cd which is coming out um in a few days on February 19th, this is going to be my ninth full album as a leader. And it's funny because I tell people that, you know, without the context of I started at 12 and they're like, what? Like, right. <laughs> Cause how old how? you're, you're 23. I'm 23. Right. <laughs> so like hot. And then I'm like, well, no, I started my first one when was when I was 12. And a lot of them I think of so much as like development CDs. Mm-hmm. Like I, I wouldn't tell people to go and listen to my 12 year old CD. Yeah. To- Do you ever listen back? <laughs> is it weird for you to hear those early ones? It's so weird. Yeah. It's like, and also like my voice is like way up here. And, uh, I think when I listen to them, I'm very proud of what I did at that time with what I knew and all of that. And I, I produced it the best that I could, but you hear such a change, you know, which is what my music teacher was trying to tell me by documenting something. And then every year documenting it, like you see 
musically to change. So when my fans buy some of my early music, I tell them like, well, just listen in order, you know. (laughs) That's such a journey, yeah. It's like listening to Jackson 5 or like early New Kids. Yeah, yeah, true. Yeah, totally. You can hear their voices change. You can hear it, but then you can still hear like certain inflections that they all had or like, or the the instinct Mm -hmm. that they had. It's really interesting. And what about for your sax playing? Can you also hear that development very I can starkly? Yeah. I'm sure I, you I can, can hear, hear it big time. But like when I, like when my dad will say, when he listens to my first CD, he'll be like, your playing is just beautiful. Like I, and I think um, it's a lot harder to tell because with the voice, it's like when you're young, your voice is so high. All right. That. We all know that difference. Exactly. Yeah. But the saxophone, from the minute that I had played it, I had gotten a really beautiful tone and a lot of things came naturally. Obviously through the years, like much more vocabulary has developed, but even from the first CD, there's quite a few tracks that still sound like pretty good. And for someone who isn't a musician would be like, wow, you know, who, who is this this person playing right right and has your 12 year old right (laughs) right has your taste expanded in terms of genre also i mean i know you you cover ellie golding like you seem to have a wide interest now i do man i just love music and i i you know i grew up kind of as a jazz baby but at the same time my parents would play like stevie wonder and then they would play like great classical music and they play great um pop music and to this day, it's kind of like my library of music is very eclectic. It could go from Miles Davis to Adele to uh, Fits in the Tantrums to, you know, yeah. Stan Getz. And I love it that way because I kind of draw from all sorts of influences. And, you know, being a young person in today's age, there's like some uh, pop people that I love and like I'll sing along to on the radio. So... I think it's a big part of actually pushing jazz forward is to fuse it with everything that makes me unique. And like right now, that's just a lot of stylistic things that are just coming into my head. Interesting. Is that controversial within the jazz community? It can be. Yeah. Yeah, it can be. And, uh, um, you know, for me, since I was 12 years old, my thing has always been, I love jazz music. I love pop music. I created a record label called Paz when I was 12 years old, which is pop and jazz. So it was like Mm. always clear in my head. And sometimes I think back to things were actually even clearer in my head when I was 12 because I wasn't thinking about like career wise in general. Right. (laughs) So I have to keep remembering even when certain moments come up where certain we call them jazz police will say this isn't jazz you know like you're not playing this and this here and you put a groove on this and who are they the jazz police (laughs) i i think the jazz police end up being um usually uh, a lot older people who have grown up with a specific type of jazz like say they grew up in listening to charlie parker their whole life and like getting to see those musicians live are they the critics or fans or players or um there's a bit of everything, but I would say that a lot of times it's more critics. Okay. Um, but there's certainly um, sometimes in the business world, like club owners and even audience members, just people who have a very specific idea of what the music is. And then you have tons of other critics, audience members, promoters who are like, 
I love the fact that you're bringing, you know, gospel in and jazz in and pop and world music. And um, yeah, I'm sure you bring in more people than you alienate by I doing think that. so. Yeah. You know, and a lot of my personal audience are people who are so open to all sorts of music and they might see a Grace Kelly concert one night. They might see uh, a Susan Tedeschi show mm-hmm. next night. They might go see. They're very open musically and that's the type of audience that I also want to cultivate and bring in it's people who just love great music I mean Duke Ellington said it best he said there's two types of music there's great music and then the other kind yeah. so there <laughs> you go. Yeah. yeah right you were included in a recent Vanity Fair article yeah called uh titled these millennials are shaking up the jazz world yeah and I think that's that's to the same point that totally. it's a, it's a bit of a generational thing to be close-minded about what can be included in the idea of jazz um and there were tons of just young people which I guess the writer uh, Will Friedwald called the contemporary era as having been post 1981. Right. And so, and that's what we all, what well, we are. And, Barely. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and that there's this whole, you know, very vibrant community of young jazz players who are experimenting with what that means. Have you, so do you feel that? sort of community as I well. I totally feel that community. And that's a very exciting thing for jazz right now, that there's like the snarky puppies of the world and John Batiste and Stay Human and Trombone Shorty and just these great musicians who are, you know, 30 or under 30 who are taking all these elements of contemporary music, of jazz, and really fusing it. And that Vanity Fair article was just so, you know, a lot of outside people who might not follow jazz think, oh, is, is jazz dead? Did jazz end with John Coltrane, blah, blah, blah. But there is such a movement right now of like young people, some of my good friends who are just out there kicking butt, doing their thing and to have a, a article that's so widely read and to kind of be like, boom, boom, jazz was made us all really, really excited. Did you have friends that like you called each other when you got the call for that article and it's like, look at what's happening. Like totally that energy. Yeah. And to be honest, I didn't think that the article was going to come out because we shot it two years before it came out and the cover article. Yeah. But but when they were shooting it, it was like they were bringing everybody in and it was these big photo shoots and it was just fantastic. So then um, there was a big buzz in the community when we were shooting it, but we couldn't really tell people what it was for. But then when it actually came out, it was like, ended up being this really big article. And just to have so many eyes on that and and even like a young readership who would be reading that and be like, oh, I don't know a lot of these people. Let, let me look that up. Or, or thinking like, wow, jazz is this cool hip thing. And there's like people my age doing it is huge. Yeah. Just curious, do you know uh, Too Many Zoos or Moon Hooch? You know, I don't know anyone in that band personally, but I'm a big fan. I love watching their clips and listening to their music. Yeah, there's two different bands that are sort of doing a similar thing of saxophone Mm -hmm. doing like electronic music, like EDM, yeah, house music with just just horns and drums. So cool. It's amazing. Yeah, there's just so much cool stuff. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. So when you got out of school, Mm -hmm. you were touring and you just went full throttle? Yeah. So once I got out of Berkeley, I was, I was, uh, touring and then I stuck around for like a couple of years, um, to do like teaching stuff for them. I was doing like a residency and, um, it was wonderful. And then at some point 
I think I was, I had just turned 21 at that time. Yeah, I was like, I need to leave Boston because it feels too comfortable. This has always been home and I want to go to a place where I feel a little uncomfortable. I'm meeting people for the first time, blah, blah, blah. So I was maybe going to go to New York and then I was like, but you know what? I grew up going back and forth to New York. I know so many musicians there. I don't know anyone on the West Coast. There's a great scene there. Well, that's not true. I was working with a, a wonderful producer at the time, Stuart Levine, who's produced Minnie Riberton, David Sanborn, great records from the 70s. He was kind of a mentor of mine. But I probably knew like five people in L.A. Mm-hmm. And I said, I want to go there just to see what it's like. I want to explore songwriting. I want to explore pop music, all of this stuff. So when I was 21, I, I moved to L.A. and I was there for... Um, a couple years. Really? Yeah. Where were you living? I was in Santa Monica. Okay. Which is so beautiful too. I mean like the weather and the yeah, lifestyle doesn't living hurt. It I know. <laughs> yeah. I mean no matter who you are that first year in LA is going to be a good year. Because oh, it just it feels is. like vacation. It does. Yeah. No matter what you're doing. Go to the grocery store and you're like this is a beautiful moment. <laughs> oh my gosh. I know. Just and I, every time I go back to it feels like that. It's like it's just yeah. a big vacation and everyone's like shiny and happy yeah. and like with <laughs> their yoga mats. <laughs> How long did it last for you? Two years? It, no, it still goes on. Oh, okay. Like I, I still think of it as like this dreamy place. And I think just having that amazing weather year round makes people, I mean, the, the chill California thing is so real because yeah. my blood pressure went way down and all of a sudden you're just kind of like, oh, I'm going to go outside. I'm going to take a hike. Yeah. yeah. I mean, when you're working in LA, you're working. It's right. the same as here. But the second you stop, it's just like, whew. Exactly. Whereas in New York, it's kind of it's like, always go, buzzing. Go, go. Yeah. And you always see people there on the move. Yeah. I think New York is incredibly stimulating and it's, you know, people are just doing their thing. But it's true that you constantly see like 24-7, people are just going and you yeah. can see that they They're might be tired. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so why did you come back? Well, I had, um, I actually got the call to, to do this the late show. Oh, really? With John. While you were living. Yeah, I was I was still in LA and then I got the call to come here and do that and it was only supposed to be a, a two week stint with them but then they said could you could you stay on board? And um so I'm still kind of transitioning even right now cuz it hasn't been that yeah, long. So when did you get here? in December? Oh wow. Yeah, and so it's February now. So oh, and, so we lucked out. Yeah. <laughs> and it was crazy cuz when they called me like I happened to be in New York when they called me, but I was only supposed to be here for like two days. So I literally had two outfits. I only had one horn with me and they wanted me to start on Monday. And I think at that time it was like Thursday. Wow. So I had to get like five different horns. I'm I'm lucky to be endorsed by Yamaha. So they like hooked me oh, nice. up. Van Doren hooked me up with all their mouthpieces and and then my parents overnighted me like tons of clothes. Wow. <laughs> it's wild. So does, does this kind of big call come to you, to your phone? Or do you have a manager? Or it's your dad? Yeah. Or? It's our dad's phone. My, okay, my dad, dad's well, phone. this came to my phone because um, John, I've been a guest with John and his band over the past couple of years. We've done stuff. I like played with his band for the Newport Jazz Festival. And it's been Stay Human or is it different iterations of different bands? Or It is. It's called John Batiste and Stay Human. And then he's kind of expanded it to be a bigger horn section okay um but yeah my dad's been managing me since i was 12 a great agent who does all my booking stuff so a lot of the business stuff will go directly to them but in the case that it's a a personal friend or a musician i always like to 
talk to them. So he called you and he said, well, okay, I know you play alto sax. Yes, right. But I don't know if you play all of these other things. And what was so funny is what I was super nervous about was clarinet because I hadn't played clarinet since fourth grade and I had a very bad experience as we were talking about. (laughs) So when they said, when he said clarinet, I said, just so you know, I'm not super comfortable on clarinet, but yes, I play it. Because when he asked me, he didn't say, can you start in four days? He just said, do you play these instruments? So in the back of my head, I was like, well, I can kind of like shed on clarinet and whenever they call me, I'll be okay at it. How, just for our understanding, like how easy is it to sort of, you know, the, the technical things about playing a horn, like, can you say, okay, well, if I have to learn clarinet in four weeks, I can do it. Like, is it that situation or is it just like, this might go really badly? Well, it's the, this might go really badly because the thing about clarinet is it's not all the same fingerings as saxophone. So like playing any of the saxophones is easy because it's all the same fingerings. Okay. But clarinet, like the whole bottom part of the instrument is different notes than the saxophone. That's when it gets super confusing. So like I know when all of my fingers are down on a saxophone that that's a D, but on clarinet, that's a... G, I think. I think. <laughs> so to prove your that, point. So it's confusing. So so all of the saxophones are pretty seamless. Yeah, there's, that's there's, easy. You need to practice them. Right. They're different, but and even flute has the same fingerings. You have to deal with your lips and getting that right. But that's less daunting to me because it's like it's the same fingering. So that's why clarinet is such a different beast. So I. You know, I, I said, yes, I do play clarinet. And then the next text was like, great, can you start with us in three days? So then Were I was you like, replacing somebody? No, I was just kind of, I was getting added. They just wanted expanded. all of those things? Yeah, and, and, and it was the first time I think that he was, he put together like a, a horn section. Okay. And um, I said, well, how much clarinet do you think you're going to have? And he said like, oh, 40%. Whoa. And I was like, whoa, it's a lot. Um, (laughs) So I basically had two days to practice. I got the instrument, had two days to practice. It was terrible. Like practicing was just hard. It's like clarinet's one of those instruments that you can't fake either. You just have to keep giving more time to it. And so the first day on the gig, this was just, this is the funniest thing to me. He has me, he says to me, can you, can you solo on clarinet on this song? <laughs> so, oh, goodness. And uh, so there I am on national TV, like playing. What was it? Like, well, it was a song of his. And what was even better um, is that he wanted to trade back and forth on piano and clarinet. And he's got <laughs> insane vocabulary on piano. He's like, then it goes to me. And I'm like, like try to do the best I can with what I have. And I came across great you know but it it was just so daunting yeah but I guess something that it's always happened to me and that I've just learned to run with is you just got to jump into the deep end sometime and and rise up to the occasion and do what you can do yeah I mean but what is it like playing on a late night house band it's so fun it's been I've been learning so much the other thing that was crazy for those first two weeks was like you work with in-ears you know you hear John's talk back, the band, you hear Stephen Colbert's voice, the guest, there's just so much going on. Um, and when I'm, I'm playing so many different doubles that I'm constantly picking up different horns or like today I played some keys or we'll be doing backup vocals or playing percussion. But in general, it's, it's really fun 
Yeah. It's a fun day. Is most of what you're playing just like 15, 20 seconds? Or? What they see on television. Right. Yeah. I was going to say, yeah. Because we basically, you know, before a commercial hits, they'll go to the band for, you know, like five or 10 yeah. seconds and then coming back from commercial. But the in-house audience... Are you playing the whole way through? Yes. The in-house audience sees oh, okay. a full song, okay, which is why it. like they're all riled up at the end. Ah. But then people like my fans are like, oh, we wanted to see the song. We just get to see the end. <laughs> that's when you have fans that get to watch you on late night. Yeah, that's And true. my parents watch every night. It's <laughs> funny. And do you get to play with the musical guests sometimes? Sometimes. Like okay. we worked with Squeeze and we did a really funny thing with Henry Rollins okay. and Steven. They, it was during Christmas time, and um, we worked with this artist whose name is Grace. Uh-huh. Um, and then just time to time, artists will come in, and we'll get to do things with them, which is really fun. That's awesome. Yeah. You guys had Lucinda on last night, right? Yeah, she was great. That's cool. And- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you didn't get to play with her. No. She had her own but people. I, but yeah. I get to watch every yeah, no, performance, great. which is really cool. Yeah. Is there much rehearsal time? No, that's the thing that kind of blew me away. It's literally like you get there at, at one hair, makeup, maybe like half an hour of rehearsal. So certain days we learn three or four new songs by ear. You know, John will just like teach us these melodies. Sometimes he has sheet music. Sometimes it's just kind of on the go. And that's what I thought coming in. I'm like, oh, it'll be plenty of rehearsal time. But actually no the day goes by and we kind of are just on the fly so you're just winging it during the during sometimes the yeah wow which is really keeps us on our toes yeah does colbert have anything to do with what the band is doing no any he, input or he really just like leaves it up to john yeah. and uh but he loves the band like today was so funny before setting up for the the musical guest portion of it he just came up to the band we were playing and he started he took the microphone and he just started singing <laughs> and it's like that this is a great awesome. <laughs> that doesn't surprise me about him no. yeah so spontaneous <laughs> <laughs> um all right so the new album yeah that's dropping this week yes that's exciting so exciting how is it different from the 12 year old <laughs> album <laughs> draw the, the full line for us yeah yeah so in some ways it's similar in in this thing of merging my musical styles and what I love this is a record that I call jazz and beyond you know the first half of the cd musically um is a little bit more acoustic and there's some great like heavy jazz vocabulary songs and then in the middle we kind of transition musically by bringing in synths I actually do a one minute track called Hayes Connection which is basically it goes from acoustic piano to adding in all synths and like some uh saxophone that's um affected and then the next song is a cover i did of coldplay's magic and from that half on is kind of more of the beyond section where we're bringing in like there's a wonderful producer i worked with in la named motion worker who does a remix of my song blues for harry bosch some more production stuff happens and the the CD as a whole is a beautiful emotional journey. It it starts not only musically does it go more acoustic to more electric, but the theme of it is kind of from darkness into light and redemption. And every track marks emotionally that transition for me. You know what I mean? So like halfway through the title track, trying to figure it out, which is a song I wrote is basically saying, you know, ups and downs, 
a lot of things going on, but we're going to keep on moving and I'm going to keep pushing forward. And then we start to get into more of like redemption and looking forward and light and celebration. And the last track is a song I wrote called Lemons Make Lemonade. And it features John Batiste on it, playing on it. And it's just full on like gospel, soul, jazz party. Uh-huh. So I want my vision of it by the end is that everyone would just be dancing in the room. But every track is kind of a step. That's cool. I love that you're a millennial, but you still appreciate the art of making a full album yeah. that should be listened to in order. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, this is my first theme-based album, and that's something that's also different from any of my past uh-huh. albums. And it is an interesting thing that, you know, when people buy singles or when you're on Spotify or whatever, yeah. um, you're not necessarily listening to things in order. But I figure in the case that people do listen to it in order, which I hope they do, or they get a moment like when they're driving or something to just listen to it, that they can actually emotionally go through it all. Because I think I wanted to make a record that really tells a story. And, and the thing about making a record is like, Why? Why am I going to do this? You know, and I hadn't made an in-studio album since I was 16. I had done an EP last year, but I hadn't done like a full thing. And the inspiration actually came from last August. I was asked to be um, in a TV show called Bosch. It's an Amazon Prime TV show. Mm -hmm. It's about an L.A. homicide detective named Harry Bosch. And it's based on a book series by the New York Times bestseller Michael Connelly. And Harry Bosch is a huge fan of jazz. And Michael had actually written me into a couple of his books, like Harry Bosch. Really? Yeah. Like The Burning Room and The Burning Room and and Black Box. And it was a huge surprise to me when I, when I found out. Like, did he use your name? Yeah. Like his character. Like you're the the real Yeah. His character talks about Grace Kelly and saxophone. Had he seen you? So this is kind of crazy. One of my mentors is the late, great alto saxophone is Frank Morgan. And Frank was a direct protege of Charlie Parker. When he was 18 years old, he was asked to be in Duke Ellington's orchestra. Like he was a real prodigy, one of my favorite saxophonists. So I had gotten to know him in the last like six months of his life through his pianist who I knew from a a program. And um, he took me on the road with him. We played at the Jazz Standard, you know, for a week. We used to call each other every day we were very close to the point where he was basically my musical grandfather now um in the harry bosch book series harry is a huge fan of frank morgan's so michael the writer had found frank and then frank had talked to him about me and then he found my music and then when frank passed away michael executive produced a documentary about him called sound of redemption because frank spent 30 years in a, in and out of san quentin prison due to drugs so his story is like pretty incredible and like relapse and would be back out then making albums then back in prison and so that's um that's how michael had heard about me and then the first time i met him was actually (laughs) it's funny first time i met michael was at san quentin prison because myself and a few great jazz musicians played a concert there for 250 of the inmates Whoa. For the documentary, wow. which was powerful. Johnny Cash style. Yeah. That's it amazing. Was, it was really powerful. And it was Ron Carter on bass, Smitty Smith, George Cables, just wow. an all-star band. And that night, 
Michael had said to me, by the way, like I, you're in my latest book. And that was the black box. Like then Crazy. I was like, what? That's amazing. And then in the, in another one of his books, he had written that the main character, Harry Bosch comes to see a Grace Kelly concert. And like in LA at the blue whale sits down listening to a version of like somewhere over the rainbow. So it, you know, incredible just like so i'm honored that harry bosch would like my music and that he he likes my my music so i got an email in august from michael saying i would love to write you in i've written you into my tv show would you be into doing it you know playing yourself and i was like yeah Yeah. (laughs) Uh, let me think yes (laughs) so he was like great um it ended up happening at catalina's jazz club in hollywood and it was such a fun day. I had an, a full audience of extras, like all dressed up. They had fake martinis and everything. And the main character, who's played by Titus Welliver, he sits in the bar and they're going to a Grace Kelly show and he's with his boss. And um, so crazy. it really features myself in, in the band. And it's and I play a, an original song called Blues for Harry Bosch that I wrote for thinking of Harry wow. in mind. And so at the end of that day, which was fantastic... Michael says to me, so people are going to want the song when this comes out. How are they going to get it? And I hadn't even thought of that. It's like, wow, (laughs) yes, we should make this, you know, available to people. But then I thought, well, we could do a single, but, you know, it's kind of time for a full album. So that was the inspiration for the album. That is the first track on the album. And then, you know... There were some songs that I knew had to make it on the album. Like, I wrote this song called He Shot a Man, which was inspired by my San Quentin experience. And then I had to kind of fill in the gaps. Like, what is this album about? What do I What do I want to say? And that's how it became, like, this theme-based emotional journey. I was like, I'm not in love. I'm not, you know, I don't have, like, love songs. I, so this is what I had. Wow. Cool. Yeah. Do you sing much on it? I do. I do. There's a fair amount of singing and original stuff and then some tracks where I'm doing both. Yeah. Will you have time to tour with the album? Yeah, so we're doing like we're doing a a big concert um in Boston in May with some special guests and some things are getting filled in now and then my hope is down the line we're going to be doing a lot more with it so you can sort of take a break from the late show come back or yeah i uh i think all of that's going to get figured out but i, I definitely want to have this project shine you awesome. know while it's out there to the world very cool you still haven't answered when you first heard the word prodigy oh and then because <laughs> i have to have an answer it'll drive me crazy okay. later and then tell us if you still feel that way, if you still feel like you're a young kid who's just like making this crazy impression on the world, or if you feel like you are now in a new, mm. more adult phase, just give us like a little, take your temperature on what's happening right now for you. Okay. So the first question is, yeah. per, what do I think of? When was, did you hear it? Do you oh, remember when did I first it? hear it? Yeah. yeah. I think, um, you know, I think it crept in. So my first album, I was 12, and the album's called Dreaming. And a very well-known vocalist, Anne Hampton Calloway, actually wrote oh, the liner notes for it. And she put it in, the liner notes. Oh, really? Yeah. And, and I think that was the first time. I Were had, you like, oh, I am? Right. <laughs> yeah, it's like, ooh. Cool. <laughs> um, you know, because it might have gotten tossed around before from newspaper clippings and stuff. But uh-huh. to have someone I respected and a, a great musician 
kind of put it in. And then, of course, once people started seeing that and but I don't know, I think that in our, in our culture, it's like you, if you see somebody very young doing that, the media kind of just yeah, yeah. they glom onto it. Yeah, yeah, totally. What's his name? That the piano player, Arthur Joey Stevens? Alexander. Oh He's amazing. <laughs> He's Matt, amazing. did you see at the that, Grammys? The, oh, the that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. I mean, imagine playing for that size crowd. I couldn't. Right. I, so that's <laughs> not you anymore. There's a whole other generation behind you now. I know. And right. and the amazing thing is, like, I, I know, Joey, I've met him, is I can so connect to to that because yeah. I it feels like yesterday that I was, like, that 12-year-old, you know, and it's just a, it's a head spin because all of a sudden, you know, just so much media, people you're playing all sold out shows sometimes for the fact that people are just like, who is this 12 year old girl playing saxophone and jazz? You know, it's like such a crazy thing in itself. And, um, there is always another young person who, yeah. you know, like Joey, who's just like, wow. But it's funny to me cause I totally know how it, it feels to be in their shoes. And then the part that I'm coming into now, which is the biggest challenge, is coming from that world, how do you transition? Because once you're The 18, spectacle is gone. Yeah, the spectacle right. is gone. Then you really need something to say artistically that's not just, I can play a million notes and I'm really young, because that goes away. You know, and once you're 18, 19, and you're in your 20s, it's kind of anyone's game. And then the only thing that really comes through is something that's different and unique. Yeah. Yeah. Which we're going to hear now because yes. you're going to play yeah. a little something hey. for us. Totally. All right. Grace Kelly, what's the name of the album that's coming out? The name of the album is Trying to Figure It Out. Aren't we Wonderful. all? <laughs> yep. <laughs> all right. Thanks, Grace. Thank, Thank you so you. much. <laughs> Thank you. 
For your next trip, elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to Quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.